I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high set up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake light tragedy among the scholars of money and war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms in underwear, burning their money in waste baskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire and paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley death or purgatory their torsos night after night with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, 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 and cock and endless balls. Heavy. Bored. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. Okay, this is Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Wittstadt. And I am a pectoral muscle big as vagina. <laughs> and this, and today we're doing Hal and Other Poems by Allen Ginsberg. I'm assuming everybody's heard of this. I'm assuming everybody's heard of this poem, even if you've never read it. You know what it is. You probably even know what Allen Ginsberg looks like if you've never read any of his work. Because honestly, dude, like, I was thinking about this as we were reading through this, like, he probably is the most famous poet, like. Yeah, did we mention what podcast this is? Yeah. Oh, shit. Pretty sure. I haven't been paying attention. Uh. But yeah, I would say so. I mean, I would say maybe. Shakespeare. Yeah, but in the contemporary period, probably, I mean, if not the, like, after Walt Whitman maybe the single biggest influence yeah i want to talk about that too because that's what i figured by the time i got to the end of this and i started seeing a lot of resonance with other stuff that i've read or at least 20th century poetry that i've read i mean Ginsburg i mean he was, basically yeah we'll get into this he was well, the guy but, well yeah i mean he basically broke open i mean I, like walt whitman did this in his own 
sort of moment, right? But he basically broke open the poetry world to be open to like the all of these other things that I guess would have been considered improper, or taboo, or um, just not with any of the literary trends. Yeah, we'll get to uh, we'll get to that yeah. too. Uh, as usual, listeners, Sophie and I have the same version of this. We have the City Lights uh, Pocket Poetry Series version. It's a pretty common one. You'll find at used bookstores. You get it pretty cheap online. But the original collection of Howl and Other Poems was published in 1956. Uh, but this 40th anniversary commemorative edition published by City Lights here, um, who I think is the original publisher as well, uh, <clears throat> came out in 1996 for like a 40th anniversary type thing. And right on it, which is actually a year before Ginsburg died, because he died in, in uh, 97. Uh, but yeah, good little slim volume. I mean, this is something you read. I read it in an hour. Uh, and it's a nice little slim volume to have. And the little tiny one is little hardcover. Is yours hardcover? No. No, you have soft cover. Yeah. I have a little um, hardcover one. Yeah, mine was gifted to me. Yeah. It's good to own. Uh, and this one has a nice introduction by William Carlos Williams. Again, because Ginsburg was the star. He was the star of 20th century poetry, and nobody's come close to it since. I'd be close. But, I mean, I guess most of you probably know this. Most listeners that are listening to this podcast probably know this. But how? Probably the most controversial book of poems that ever existed... And the reason for that yeah. is mainly because of like the puritanism of the fifties in America, but still. Well, and it was banned for a while, wasn't it? Right. It was banned upon publication. And there's a nice little write up in these books. If you get this version, we link it in the description as always, but yeah, basically city lights was all copies of the books were seized. Um, city lights was put on trial. They arrested the publisher and the bookstore manager city lights, I think still exists a bookstore in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, that also put out books kind of around this time. And they were the big backers of like the beat poets at the time or the beat writers at the time. Well, that was Lawrence Ferlinghetti's store, right? Yeah, he was, he was the, guy. the guy that ran the store in the press and he was uh, put on trial for it. And that's really the big thing about this is like, and maybe we should talk about that a little bit, like kind of how much of this book's reputation is based around the idea that people found it obscene when it came out in 1956 to the point where like, you know, the kind of like Puritan uh, United States government at the time was saying that it was obscene and shouldn't be published. Yeah. I mean, like if I this book came out and they didn't do that, would it have been the book that it is well, today? Do we know I mean, it's hard it to, just, it's impossible yeah, to say. It's, but it's, it's, yeah. I also, th I mean, I do think it would have been a big deal. I think this, it, it, the poems are good, right? What, however, you know, we want to really talk about them. There's a lot that they do that is impressive. So, yeah, I think it would have been a big deal anyway. Um, maybe less so. But I think also that movement was already such a thing, you know? Like, and they I were so... Uh, about being a movement it feels like oh yeah that's literally all the beats were about but i'll get to that too we're gonna you guys are <coughs> listeners will finally hear my opinion on the beats um 
But yeah, and I guess most of the obscene stuff that they said was obscene was like the drug use and the gay stuff is essentially what yeah. the kind of Puritan 1950s, you know, right after McCarthyism stuff that happened in the United States. Uh, listeners can look into that if you're unfamiliar with it. Like, I mean, they also say cock and cunt a bunch. Cock and cunt so. and, you know, just the bad words. But really it's the drugs and the gay stuff that people were upset about. Because people were saying cock and cunt in all kinds of books, you know before this but yeah there was like some you know and, and you could try i don't know i mean people probably have all kinds of theories as to what sparked this but just reality was it was kind of much more puritanical some argue we're living through a similar similar circumstance now in terms of like puritanism that's over everything it's a little different but the argument argument can be made so it was really controversial and this is i mean this is sold they said in the back of the book here this is sold over a million copies and those of you that follow this podcast like poetry or literature in general, like for any book to sell a million copies, especially nowadays, let alone a poetry book, like a poetry, it's unheard of. Like it does not happen. It will never happen ever again. Like there are no poetry books that are going to be selling a million copies by a single author. Maybe some of these anthologies put together by what's his name, like Billy Collins or some bullshit, right? That might sell close to a million copies, but I, don't, I doubt it even comes close to I bet there's like 150,000 copies of some of those, you know, pose, poems for the everyday or whatever, that stupid series that Billy Collins edits. Like, this, nothing comes close. Like, this book sold more, and therefore this book is the most influential poetic work of the 20th century. And I include oh, yeah. that I mean, with the modernist. And that's, you know, uh, coincides with the modernist stuff in the early part of the 20th century. Like, this is more influential than anything that came out of the modernist. At least that's my opinion. So even in, I pulled out my Norton that we actually both have, the Norton. Dude, you um, know it's a good episode when Sophie's busting out the Norton. <laughs> Uh, the Norton Anthology of Modern and Contemporary Poetry, we have the Contemporary Collection, right? Because it's split into two. They have Modern Poetry and they have Contemporary. Uh, you should buy I know, both. I think, yeah, you have both. I just have Contemporary. We'll link those um, in the description if listeners want them. And the section on Ginsburg um, in, you know, in the little headnote um, where we have a little explanation of Ginsburg and his moment. It says, for some, the publication of Ginsburg's Howl and Other Poems in 1956 was the beginning of a mindless and mercifully short-lived poetic fad, a cult of slovenly verse that encouraged dangerously slovenly behavior. For others, it was a fortunate and revolutionary change in the direction of American poetry. Anybody who said so, that yeah. fad is short-lived is a terrible scholar. Is a terrible. It's if you think just the fad, incorrect, yeah. Well, like if, he, yeah. right. But he's also saying like first, some, like these are the views of it that people seem right. to have that either it was like a like that the whole beat poet thing was just like divided a lot of scholars. Of fad. Yeah, yeah. It divided scholars. They thought it was garbage, and then a lot of them that like thought it was cool, and which is going to happen, of course, with like any. Which I guess shift. Yeah, and I guess we can talk about the beats now. Fuck it. We'll just say like what do we think of the beats in general? I know what I think, but so <laughs> I mean when you say the beats as though there are so many of them. Well, there's know. really only like four. Yeah. 
There's yeah. really only like, four that I matter. Mean, and I would argue there's only one that and matters. And how many, yeah, and only one of them is really a poet, right? Like, what other beat poets do we have? There were a couple, they just weren't good. Uh, like, during mean, the, who was, there was a female one that, like, kind of got shoved in there during this last 10 years of, like, let's change everything and pretend that there wasn't, that there was, like, you know, um, all this talent that went wasted or something because of sexism or something. So they like pulled out a few female writers of that time and they're trying to shove them into the, I can't even think of their names right now, but I remember a couple years ago, I think like the New Yorker or somebody did a big write up on like a couple of the female beat poets that we don't remember because they aren't good. Like it's oh, just God. Kenneth Patchen people fucking. Yeah. He's Kenneth no good. Patchen. Like, but people also lump in some of the poets who came right after who were really, really inspired by it. Like, you know, Gary Snyder is the one I think. Yeah. Of. Well, but like, the big ones that people talk about are Ginsburg. Be. They talk about Burroughs and they talk about Kerouac, right? Yeah, like those, those are the big three, the big yeah. three that people call refer to when, when they, they say talk the beats. about the beats, but like we talk about the beat poets, like it's this big, uh, right. I mean, and there were other poets like there were, but we don't, they're not as famous. They weren't as like major, um, like according to, let's see, poetry foundation, it lists Lawrence Ferlinghetti, so again, City Lights. And he was uh, kind of like the, the Frank O'Hara or the um, uh, Gertrude, Gertrude Stein of this the This is era. another name that I hear a lot. So Richard Brodigan, Gregory Corso, Allen Ginsberg, Michael McClure, Jack Hirschman, Kenneth Patchen, Diane DePrima. Um, who I know nothing of. She's one of the ones that they they've tried to like kind of retrograde into it as if she was I mean I no doubt she was part of the movement she was a publishing poet at the time she just again like it just wasn't as good as the other as basically as Ginsburg's stuff and I've said this for a while now like since I've st- actually read some of this stuff I don't know how much a lot of listeners have read uh, everybody pretends that they've read On the Road everybody pretends that they've read Ugh. Naked Lunch and stuff like that Ugh. it's like kind of like Moby Dick where like a lot of scholars Keep pretend that they've read these I've tried to read. I've read a few Kerouac books. Yeah. I've read a few Burroughs books. And again, those guys wrote more fiction. Really, they were kind of the first auto-fiction type guys that did yeah. this. <clears throat> and I have to say, I say this all the time, Ginsburg is the only beat worth remembering. Yep. Like, he is the only beat worth remembering. Like, if you read Kerouac, if you, I mean, you know, sure, people think I'm wrong on this. Go ahead and put it in the comments. Like... Because if you read Kerouac, and I mean any of his books, you can read On the Road, you can read some of his most famous, which is probably his most famous, and you can read any of his minor stuff. And then, like, it's not good. Like, it is hard to read. It is rambling. It is this lofty kind of philosophical bullshit that I can't stand. And, you know, On the Road is the most famous one. I've read Desolation Angels. I've read The Dharma Bums. I've read... Uh, you know, on the road, and I am just not a Kerouac fan. Although I think what people like about the beats is this kind of fuck you, kind of drifting through the world, experiencing things kind of stuff that they wrote about. Burroughs. Yeah, until it gets I've obnoxious. Read, yeah, and Burroughs, I've read Naked Lunch. I've read his best book, The Exterminators, was his, his best book. But it's like, Burroughs gets this huge reputation, but like when you read his work, it is. I can't see it as anything other than the kind of incoherent ramblings and like notes of a heroin addict. Like that's what it is. So you're reading his incoherent, like rambling kind of half-assed stories of this guy just being so whacked out of his mind on heroin that like 
he could not have been like a decent like <laughs> writer if he tried because like it's just and people can disagree with me on that but again i think kerouac and burroughs and ginsburg to an extent are romanticized beyond what they actually contributed apart from ginsburg ginsburg contributed more than any of them i think but yeah that's my whole spiel on the beats and like studying the beats yeah, and I mean, I you too guys had can a read really for yourselves and see Kerouac. if you're disappointed. I had a hard yeah. time with Burroughs. <laughs> I didn't, I never found myself drawn. Some people might argue that it's, you know, because they're both like really, I don't know, would you say masculine? Like, I'm not even yeah, sure that that is, like, they are. Even though Burroughs was gay and Ginsburg was gay. I actually have a question but, about that in Ginsburg is that it is very masculine, even though it is, uh, I mean, again, this idea that a gay man can't be masculine is, is modern oh, bullshit. Yeah, no, bullshit. Yeah, it's modern bullshit. But at, back then, you know, it was actually very much a part of it. Well, right? I think it's so, just like a silly sort of misperception that is. And it's based sure, on more contemporary. Long been. Is it though? Like, I mean, I think people I think called gay people flam- sissies for all of time. Yes, like, sissies. You know. But I just mean like the personality trait of being like the flamboyantly kind of feminized man as a gay man that's been like kind of a 1970 you know i mean i guess it's always existed but it just became part of a part of pop culture more contemporary kind of stuff at least that's what i would say but i think there's a lot of masculinity in all of those writers yeah even when even when uh burroughs is writing about rimming young boys in a whorehouse uh on heroin well yeah whatever it's still very masculine i I think i would agree i also like just don't especially care for it i mean like it's just a style of writing that doesn't do it for me i'm a person who really loves plot you know um this is why i struggle with ernest hemingway with the exception of maybe a couple i mean his short stories are great like but for the same reason like i had a hard time with the sun also rises like there's just not a lot going on it and with the beats it can be very meandering you know they were really into the whole stream of consciousness thing and like just not for me i just didn't love it i don't i never got into on the road there was a big revival i I feel like there was a big revival of the beats when we were kids or like when we were growing up like they started doing or is it just that every fucking eight yeah that's true i mean it was becoming like sort of a hot thing in movies at the moment but i also wonder if this is sort of like anyone who's sort of into the literary world and interested in learning about it who like discovers alan ginsburg when they're 18 is like holy shit Yes, and you should balls. feel that. Yeah, and you should yeah. feel that when you're I mean, reading like, the beats. I mean, like it's going to speak to every 18 year old. Like, and that's know, when who's I remember discovering being... poetry. Who's just introduced to Blake? Right, like that's when we're like first learning about poetry. Like I had just been introduced to like Milton and Blake and sort of more classic, uh, you know, like the the stuff of poetry that you tend to learn, or at least that I was learning in high school. Um. And then you get this and you're like, oh, fuck. It's like running into Bukowski for the first time, you know, yeah, except abs- times a thousand. I mean, whenever you run into something for the first time that kind of opens your mind or completely gut checks you, you should have a visceral reaction like that. That's part of what we love about art. It's part of the reason we start. We have this fucking podcast to talk about things like that. And I love praising things like that. But there was this kind of revival kind of around the 2008 era when you and I were kind of getting into college and learning this stuff in college for the first time, you know. And it's like, I remember Emma Watson had her little on the road bullshit because she had just come off the Hermione Granger thing. 
and she was like trying to like do an indie actor thing so she like produced oh, I and forgot starred that in that they on the road movie. version and Didn't then watch it. there were two Ginsburg movies that came out. One with James Franco and one with Daniel Radcliffe, both playing yep. young Ginsburg, composing yeah. Hal. So like Hal had this big revival around that time where like all the artsy people were getting back into the beats as if they ever stopped. But I just mean, you know, yeah. like, it became a And then a there was a moment where everyone was make. yeah, I remember a moment where there were maybe a couple of Sylvia Plath movies and then that was followed up with like some William Carlos Williams. So like we're kind of. Yeah just in that moment and William Carlos Williams we should add um, did the introduction to um, this at least the 40th anniversary version yeah yeah. which I mean dude to have William Carlos Williams write an introduction to your poetry book and this is even he probably wrote this at the end of Ginsburg's life too and it was definitely at the end of William's life it was just can you imagine having a legend like that, like write a nice thing about your, I mean, it's oh, the yeah, ultimate, it's ultimate, yeah, it's the ultimate thing you go for. I mean, to you probably feel honored. I'm sure Ginsburg did. You know, he wasn't, uh, I mean, as if I knew him or anything, but yeah, very good. And I don't know, there's just that revival of the beats and everybody kind of, it's romanticized to this thing. And then you kind of pick up those books that everybody talks about and you start reading them and it's, yeah, you know, maybe this was really exciting in the fifties, but like, it just isn't as exciting to me now. It's kind of boring and long winded and this kind of, I don't want to say small minded cause it isn't. It's just kind of this, bo- I get bored by philosophical takes. I get bored by auto fiction. If I'm just stuck rambling around in somebody's head who isn't interesting, like I don't know like dude the biggest thing when I read Desolation Angels for Kerouac that was the moment that sealed the deal for me where I was like you know I don't think I like the beats like (laughs) I was like you know I don't think I really like these guys that much like in terms of their writing I like the idea I like the romanticized kind of artsy thing behind it well and can we talk about some of the romanticized kind of artsy things behind it like what are the romanticized kind of artsy things behind it because i think that is part of what yeah that's like what makes this like the coming of age poets poem right right like that's what makes ginsburg like the young poets poet um he's a great one like to be introduced to poetry right um He's a great one to get into, you know, when you're sort of first exploring that. Because, one, it's pretty accessible, even though it's really, um, you know, he writes a lot of long poems. It rejects the stuffiness of poetry, but by the same time, it's still using the techniques of poetry to make oh, it yeah, a I great mean, poem. And it's still so like it's really a brilliant... Yeah. the easiest read in the world i wouldn't look at this and be like yeah this is an easy poem but you're right you can read how without knowing anything about poetry and still get something out of it like right exactly and you'll still feel it and even if it's just like you know a, an accumulation of sort of <laughs> i don't want to reduce it to an accumulation of profanities but like you, some, you sort some of parts get of something about yeah. the attitude of the poet and you get these snippets that really I think are an easy window which again easy is the wrong word but like I think it's accessible to younger readers in a way that as somebody who is very self-conscious about um you know their knowledge of poetry even like you know as somebody who is just becoming acquainted you you don't know your own authority you're suspicious of your own 
authority as, yeah, as we talked about I on mean, the Phillips episode and stuff like that. I, you know, I think it's a really good um, entryway into sort of becoming a serious reader of poetry and like really starting to break things down, which is, you know, I would say the and same is true of like Emily Dickinson. It's just because it's something sh she has such short poems that you can read over and over and over again. And, sort and of obsess I think over. the reason where we, people are drawn to it, I think for the same reason people are drawn to a lot of the past movements of literature, not just because they're good and like good works that people like to read, but because the beats had a very, you know, it was still in this time where like communities could exist in the writing world. So like the beats were a specific school of writing or what we would call a school and scholarship years later type thing. And well, like, and they were a community and right, they reference and, each other a lot right. in their writing. They reference each other's work and the dedication to this, which we're about. We but like spent the book, time but, together, spent time like composing right, lived each other's together, presence. Got drunk like together, they hung out, uh, like they were sucked friends. each other's dicks. Yeah. Like, Not in the literally. way of we're just colleagues. Yeah. Like they, you know, right. were friends. Right. Yeah. And they would like, yeah, like, like, you know, <sighs> And it is very ma and then it was very masculine. Like when you said masculine, like it, it is true. Like it, it is, there's a way that men do this kind of camaraderie thing together. And we've talked about this a little bit on some of our episodes. And depending on the writer, I guess we get more into it. To, you know, when we have to. But it is this kind of, you know, we've talked about yeah, like the kind of the 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 uh, the boys doing like gay shit to each other as like camaraderie, like you know, tugging yeah. tugging wieners, uh, slapping asses, right, like. Uh, ball taps right like this kind of very homoerotic stuff that like even even though there were a lot of gay men in that movement that even Kerouac as a straight you know straight man was doing this stuff you know like all this kind of thing and it was it was just like yeah it was like a click it was like a click of people that like all read each other's stuff were all inspired by it talked about each other's stuff all the time were really into this idea of doing something new with the with an old art form like literature and they all did something new with it and I think that's part of the romanization as well, is because we really don't have that anymore. There are a few scenes, and people can talk about this, put, put your thoughts in the comments. It's like, there really is no literary scene now. There is the high-minded New York scene, which has always been a part of this, and which was, um, I guess, was torn about the beats. Some of them thought it was good, some of them thought it was bad, right? But, like, that still exists, but it is not... There, there are no other communities in terms of what's happening. And, and maybe that's because of the internet. Maybe that's because of how like branched off everything is now and like niche. Um, I don't know why, maybe because the industry kind of got monopolized by the Academy. I, I don't know why, yeah, I mean... because this, the beats should we, we should say this and Ginsburg references, references it directly in a lot of his work. They were anti-academic. They did not like the academy. They were kicked out of academies. Like they were not, yeah. they didn't finish their undergraduate college and work. Gidsburg famously was kicked out of college, yeah. right? I don't remember. Where did he go? Did he go to NYU or Columbia? He went to school in New York though, right? I don't know. But he was granted yeah. a bunch of okay. yeah, like he went honorary to Columbia PhDs. Universally. Okay, he went to Columbia University, and in 45, he was temporarily suspended. But he did go on to receive a BA from Columbia. So, but like he wasn't anti so anti-academic that he, you know, didn't go to the Ivy and finish. And he his made his living after there. that, mostly doing He was tours. also the son of, you know, a much more traditional poet. poet. 
who we don't remember, but we remember Alan. Who we don't remember was, was apparently successful. <laughs> successful in terms yeah. of he had an academic position, I guess, and could publish books. Yeah, or he was well thought of. He, that that was know, before uh, Gen X let the industry be destroyed. Uh, but it also but, doesn't matter. Like, you can be a highly regarded poet in a, of a given moment and not be remembered in history, which is, you know. The norm true in 800 ways we can talk about yeah. and for 800 reasons we can talk about and some of them are fucked up and some of them are just sort of what happens like um do you want to talk a little bit about uh wcw's intro yeah <coughs> I, mean, I don't want to spend too long on this because we've you know we've been chatting I, for like half an hour and i think well, these poems are really long, so I don't know if we have to get into like entire poems, no, but I have questions I about so. stuff. And honestly, listeners, most of what you're going to hear us say about this is praise. Like when I read this book, I read it quickly. I read it in one sitting. It's only about 45, 50 pages. And then like you read it and it's so inspiring and like high energy and just kind of like it flows. And there's a little bit of difference in terms of the collection. Clearly, how was the centerpiece that like the rest of the book was constructed around and all that kind of like leaves of grass. It's actually very much like leaves of grass, which we'll get to you. But yeah, yeah, I think we should hit the dedication, talk about the little bit of the introduction and then, you know, his Whitman quote that starts this entire fucking book where he quotes directly from Whitman, but the dedication that he wrote himself, um, like we said, is, is talking about Neil Cassidy, Burroughs, Kerouac, like all these people that he was writing with, you know, giving drafts to. So he dedicates the entire book to Jack Kerouac, new Buddha of American prose, who spit forth intelligence into 11 books written in only half the number of years, 1951 to 1956. On the Road, Visions of Neil, Dr. Sachs, Springtime Mary, The Subterranean, San Francisco Blues, Some of the Dharma, Book of Dreams, Wake Up, Mexico City Blues, and Visions of Gerard, creating a spontaneous bop prosody in original classic literature. Several phrases and the title of how are taken from him. William Seward Burroughs, author of Naked Lunch, an endless novel which will drive everybody mad. <laughs> and it is an endless novel, and it's not good, listeners, but yeah. It is maddening. Yeah. Neil Cassidy, author of The First Third, an autobiography, 1949, which enlightened Buddha. <laughs> yeah, dude, like, he just didn't give a... Oh, yeah. He's purposely pushing buttons. He's like, all these books are published in heaven. <laughs> and it kind of gives yeah. you this idea of... Ginsburg, while he took this very seriously, he also understood that it was just art, right? Like it was just kind of not nonsense. And we, we make this argument all the time here, but it was like, you know, the kind of don't take yourself too seriously shit that everybody talks yeah. about and says all the time as a cliche. Well, like he was that guy, like where he would be dead serious about certain things and then just be like joking, full of jokes laughing little bits that he knew was going to piss off you know academics and or the high-minded society that rejected him and tried to censor his book i say that too like this is an interesting book to pull out dude right now at this time because at this time when this book was banned the literally the federal government was after him shutting down bookstores taking copies off shelves shit that we have not seen in the country in my lifetime i mean that hasn't happened really since like the 70s or anything like that 
really even before you know the 60s maybe where there was like a lot of revolutionary shit in the country and again i can only know that from reading because i wasn't alive but dude you imagine if you got your book banned for obscenity today i just do not think that academics would go into court and argue in front of a judge that your book has literary merit i just don't think that would happen today regardless of what it was regardless of what you were doing there's just freedom to be creative and like freedom of artists particularly and this go overlaps with freedom of speech and all that like it just isn't there now like this just wouldn't happen if you had your book and like you had the entire world up against you trying to ban your book for some type of obscenity or whatever it is nowadays it would be some type of accusation and then it would just they would not defend you like it just doesn't exist right now anymore nobody would come and defend your stuff as having literary merit and your freedom to create and all that stuff it just doesn't exist right now and not to say that it would never come back or that it would never happen we're just in a weird period right now where like censorship is considered great when it comes to art and we have to make taylor swift change her music video because people are upset it says fat or whatever on a scale uh but yeah <laughs> Well, and this is also like something that was considered very much of the counterculture, and they took a lot of like pride in that. It seems oh, right, dude. I'm glad you brought that up, dude. The counterculture, and listeners, get ready for this with like this kind of. We're about to hear a rant. Yeah, counterculture, and that's so important. Is art has always been the counterculture, like. And we talked about this a little bit on the Bogan episode when she talked about her being afraid of being a square because she was a New Yorker, poetry critic, you know, this high-minded, that high literary scene in New York City. She wasn't part of the counterculture. And all the great art from, you know, most movements throughout history, if you study this shit, came from the counterculture. It came from these kind of people that rejected the academic consensus, that rejected um, the stuff that came before them to some extent, right? Not entirely, but like... Well, uh, or they responded really strongly to what right. came before them and made adjustments, right? Like they, they had a strong reaction. And this so is it wasn't always a rejection part. outright. The biggest problem we have right now in literature, and I think this is part of the reason that it feels so hollow and empty to a lot of people with no community, is that counterculture is shunned in art right now. Like if you there well, there is no counterculture. Like if yeah, you try to say, do what something would that even be? if you try to do something counter to the current culture or the mainstream culture, the consensus, whatever it is, again, you will have your book removed, you will have your book deal taken away from you. You will not be defended by academics in court like Ginsburg was. You will be shunned. Your career will be over. Like, there is no counterculture. So, therefore, art sucks right now. Like, how can you make good art if there is no counterculture to go to? And then, you know, this changed throughout history. You can point to different aspects. Like, the counterculture isn't always the same, even in the 20th century, right? 20th century, the counterculture was something very specific. In the 50s, it changed a little bit in the 60s and then 70s and all that, right? Uh, in the 80s, 90s, but like counterculture was always a huge part of art. And since it doesn't exist right now, that literally the only thing we can do is uh, repeat what we hear in newspapers and see on social media timelines. That's literally all we're allowed to do in art right now. <clears throat> if you deviate from any of that, you are not, you are literally not allowed to publish. Like, I think it, it makes me sad, but it also makes me nostalgic for this book again. Like, reading this book, I read it, you know, when I was younger, a teenager, in college. I hadn't read it in maybe 10 years or more. And I pulled it out, you know, this little copy on my shelf. And 
it was like a breath of fresh air just going back and reading it, dude. Just, yeah, like this counterculture, this purposely being like, fuck you, cock and endless balls. Right there in my poem, that's an homage to Whitman. Right there. Cock and endless balls. Right there. And it's, it's great. It's great. I think we need to develop a new counterculture to some extent. Like, that's always varying degrees. All of it. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I agree. Like... Um, maybe I just haven't thought about this enough. I think that, uh, I mean, there's just such a huge, huge, uh, community of like, well, community, I'm using that term very loosely. I mean, population, uh, right. Uh, there's a huge population of like aspiring writers much more than, you know, we've ever had, right. More people have access to it than there ever have been. Where is like, I think whether there is a counterculture would be really hard to even like pinpoint right i don't even know that there is i mean in some way you're right right like uh you know i don't know why it got this way maybe it's the internet and social media but somehow it got to this point where any type of veering off the current kind of consensus puts you in peril puts you in danger and not in the good way like ginsburg where you get to sell more copies if you get banned like literally like ruins your life well, i also just think like counterculture right like suggests that there was like this uh there was this other culture that was like we're <laughs> i don't know it like it suggests that there's like some i don't know you can cut all of this from this episode, <laughs> but I feel like it suggests that there's like some yeah. fancy fucking alternative to whatever the status quo is in poetry, but there isn't like, uh, you know, it just doesn't, it isn't there unless you want to like go back however many years to look at when the language poets were publishing and they weren't really counterculture. They like thought of themselves as being like avant-garde, which I also don't really think is much of a thing anymore. Well, like I think I when everyone thinks of themselves as being somehow part of this counterculture, it's like, it's not a counterculture anymore. It's just culture. You know, like avant-garde was a counterculture response to the previous, and again, it was started in the painting movement, but like the avant-garde was, kind of a response to the previous generations um you know well i mean there's been a different like avant-garde and you know different generations but i think the most recent that we know of at least in poetry is like the language poets who wrote a ton of nonsense and that was 80s interesting yeah and they had more their ideas were like more interesting than their poems I, well, like, I just, are there schools of poetry anymore? You know, like there. No. Well, I think that's part of it, too, is that it's all become this kind of more, you know, amorphous blob. Like it's this little blob that like sucks everything. And I think this is partly because the Academy has a monopoly on this. Like there's no way to make money doing poetry. There's no business in poetry. There is only business in academia, which is why poetry has been usurped by that. And now that social media is a business, it's like usurping poetry again because poetry i just have this strong feeling that a lot of people who like uh, you know exist in the poetry world like to think of themselves as somehow like being an extension of like some outgrowth of the counterculture of even if they don't like correct like you know um specifically think that right like it's like 
dude, this is Philip said this. I think poetry just became like a place for that. Right. That's what it grew into. And now that's what it is. But it's like it's not the counterculture because they're that's the whole culture. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of bullshit. You should cut all that. Yeah. Listeners can let us know. I think not having a counterculture is hurting art, period. But not just that. So if you or if even if you step outside of bounds, dude, you just have to have the fortitude to be able to have people screaming in your face when you give a reading or something, because that's just what happens now. If you step outside the boundary, which is, you know, set by the magazines, if you're somebody who's reading The New Yorker every week and think that you're part of the counterculture. Readings aren't good and no one's going to them anyway. Well, I just mean like it's not the counterculture. Like they don't even understand it. Like they don't know what it is. Like there is none that you can go to. Uh there's no reference to it or anything. It's just all the same stuff. But yeah, we've talked about it long enough. Yeah, so I think at least in the opening. So we have William Carlos Williams, another um, do you want to hit? Do you want to hit that uh, that Whitman quote in the beginning? Oh, it's on the title yeah. page, but I imagine oh, it was published right. in the. Uh, in the original version because this is very much like a Whitman inspired book I was and skipped Howl, right over that and Hal is very much a Leaves of Grass inspired poem uh, but unscrew the locks from the doors unscrew the jam unscrew the doors themselves from their jams right and I remember that's a very distinct line in Leaves of Grass unscrew the locks from the doors unscrew the doors themselves from their jams and I think it's appropriate to have that i mean clearly like unscrew the locks from the doors unscrew the doors themselves from the jams like open it up right open yeah. it up to every, like kind of thing uh very romanticized notion but i mean i like it i think that drives a lot of art is this kind of opening up right like this drives a lot of yeah. artists this drives a lot of great art too open it up take the doors off and Just some t- very shitty art yeah also. and some terrible art in the name of it yeah <laughs> of course yeah. but yeah what do you want to say let's go to the introduction now the Williams introduction. Yeah. Um, would you, I would say, you know, as I was reading this, I forced myself to read the introduction this time. I often skip over them because I find them to be terribly, terribly boring. Well, this is nice um, and short and it's written by another poet. So it's a nice little reflection and the kind of mm-hmm. friendship, like expression. Yeah. Um, First of all, it seems like he's just shocked that Ginsburg grew up to, like, be a successful poet. I mean, in an all kind of way, but I did find it kind of funny. He was like, God damn, kid. I am shocked you survived and lived long (laughs) enough to, like, and held on to your mind long enough to, like, you know, put out a book. Right. Um Now he turns up 15 or 20 years later with an arresting poem. Literally, he has, from all the evidence, been through hell. On the way, he met a man named Carl Solomon, with whom he shared among the teeth and excrement of this life something that cannot be described, but in the words he has used to describe it. (laughs) Which is funny, right? Um, We know nothing of Carl Solomon except that, right, this is... (laughs) That somewhere in his life he met a man named Carl Solomon, who on some level he loved, right? That can be described in no words but those he has used to describe it. Yeah. Um, it is a howl of defeat, he says. 
poets are damned, but they are not blind. They see with the eyes of the angels. Um, but he positions it, I would say, as a kind of love poem. Yeah, and there's a lot of speculation around this, too. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know enough about it. Maybe some people that are more into uh, Ginsburg can tell us. Put it in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. But yeah, there's a lot read into about why this is dedicated to Carl Solomon, who he is, you know, was he a lover? Was he a friend? Was he a mentor? Yeah, I, don't, like, I, don't, I don't think that especially matters here. Right. And does it really? Like, how much what is, is this truly a love? Yeah. yeah. And like, what is this really a love letter to? Is it just to Carl Solomon? Is it to something Carl Solomon represents or is there... Are there other threads? And I mean, it's a long poem. I would say there are other threads. I would Ooh. say it's <laughs> how how yeah, it's about um, my barbaric well, yelp. Little... Yeah, my barbaric yelp. Very very Whitman. Yeah. Um, how this poet sees through and all around the horrors he partakes of in the very intimate details of his poem. He avoids nothing but experiences it to the hilt. So there's also, like, no guys that, like, there's a suggestion here that, yes, like, this speaker is very much Ginsburg himself, right? There is really no separation between who the writer is and who the speaker is here. Um, he avoids nothing but experiences it to the hilt. He contains it, claims it as his own, and we believe laughs at it. And has the time and effrontery to love a fellow of his choice and record that love in a well-made poem. Hold back the edges of your gowns, ladies. We are going through hell. Yeah, that's a great little line there. Yeah. Very good. And yeah, it's a good little introduction. I think we talked about it. Williams, we like Williams. We like Ginsburg. And it's good that it's appropriate that Williams wrote an intro to this. Even however short, just a few paragraphs, but it's enough, right? We've talked about this kind of academics writing introductions versus other writers writing introductions. Usually the writers are better. No. But all right. I mean, I don't know how much we want to go into, but yeah, how? We don't have to read this whole thing because it's very long. But everybody knows the first couple lines, right? Even if you don't know anything about poetry, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night. Like, oh, man, like already it's yeah. starting to kind of do that overwhelming. That's like the first kind of couple lines. And it's very much written like leaves of grass with these extended, long-ass lines that don't even really end ever. That f overflow <clears throat> right over and the no margin. And no strict yeah. sentence structure. It's all huge sentences, like the huge, winding sentences. Like I don't think well, there's a I single mean, period in this until we get... Uh, well, it's a list, right? Like, yeah. it's long as shit, and it's a huge, long list. Um, I saw the best minds of my generation, basically, and then everything after that is who poverty and tatters and hollowed eyes, who uh, bared their brains to heaven, who passed through the universities, who were expelled from the academies, right. who cowered in unshaven rooms, who got busted in their public pubic beards returning through, you know, like who ate fire and paint right. hotels. Um, this addition, this addition, a, this addition, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very much listy, very much like Whitman. Um, and it achieves sort of it perfectly. All encompassing view of like, I mean, we go back to Whitman, this idea of like the everyman, right? Yeah, but like, well, who else is like, kind of close, like the everyman like, of this particular generation, right? Yeah, That's so sort it's, of what he's describing. And it's like a hundred years later. It's like a hundred years after Whitman published that book, basically. Except it's not even the everyman. It's the specifically the best minds of my generation. Um, I think it's it's much more. I think it's even more resonant now that I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Like just that line alone, even more resonant. Maybe it's always resonant. Maybe that's the th- like a universal yeah. that we're always think, searching well, for. Well, I think that's it, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, how I couldn't say much about this. I mean, there's just some favorite lines. I mean, listening to yeah, the crack well, of I mean, doom I on think... the hydrogen jukebox, like fantastic. Yeah, well, that's right. Like, I mean, that's the thing that he does so well. Like, puts together surprising language, right? It's yeah. surprising. Who um, lit cigarettes? Starving, bo- hysterical, yeah. naked. Like, no punctuation in any of that until after naked. Destroyed by madness. Starving, hysterical, naked. I mean, like, the way he sort of shoves words together in places, right? We see a lot of that. I see a lot of that in contemporary poetry. I think Um, he inspired it. This kind of the boundaries of the metaphor. I think Ginsburg was fantastic at expanding and pushing and kicking with everything he had at the boundaries of metaphor. It's like, what is the limit? How far can I go? Kind of thing before you have to start scratching your head, right? And I think he does it beautifully. He does it in a great way where he pushes those boundaries without succumbing to total rejection of structure and, you Mm -hmm. know, tradition and all the things that people claim to be against when they're doing some type of counterculture stuff. So I think that's really what gives this what, you know, when we did our Phillips episode, what they would call resonance. Why are people still obsessed with this poem so many years later? Why is it still selling copies? Like, why is every college student that's interested in poetry have a little copy of this book or at least read it or, you know, listen to uh, a well, recording? I mean, it's also so damn the man, so damn the yeah. institution, but also God bless the institution because, you know, <laughs> there is no avoiding it. You know, like, I mean... And that is just all throughout this book, too. It's not just this poem. And, you know, throughout this book, we say, like, the sort of latter half of this book are later poems, I think. Or earlier poems, I mean. Um, (coughs) Like, Howl, while being the first poem in the book, I think, is the last written in it. Right? I don't don't know. I think. They have Um, dates on all the poems here, but I didn't go through to... uh check well because i mean just in the uh, so 55 to 56 was when he said they got how okay so maybe composed. yeah so from Howl up to in the baggage room at greyhound and then you do see you see a change so like the last maybe four to five poems are really different in style more um, traditional and they're yeah and they're earlier poems so you can definitely see a shift in style that happens in this book but it's sort of backwards Uh, it's not a shift in style that's happening from the beginning to the end of the book but sort of in reverse um who lit who lit cigarettes in boxcars 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 racketing through snow toward lonesome farms and grandfather night heavy repetition and it just works so well and like nothing's really been repeated up until that point. That's on page twelve, and it just goes 
the perfect repetition. Oh, yeah, it's still already so box, such a big box, repetition box, poem, box, though, right? Because it's like, who did this and who did this and who did this? It's a list. So already it has a really repetitive feel, even though it's not repeating specific language like that. Yeah, I mean, yakety, yakking, screaming, vomiting, whispering facts and memories. Like, I mean, just yeah. the sort of strings of, like, words that could replace the previous word, right? Yeah. Screaming, no. Vomiting, no. Whispering. <clears throat> like, you know, like, like you almost want to add a no in between them, right? But instead, it's just, like, screaming, vomiting, whispering, all of these things that may not, like, quite belong together in one line. And so it's stuff like that. It's sort of... I'm going to call this like a lack of restraint, even though I know it's not because I've heard readings of this poems and I've seen I've like I and this goes for other poems too, where like there are things that we've heard him read in recordings that have since been eliminated from the actual printed version. Um, yeah. So it's not that he like entirely lacked restraint, right? No, and I think that's but, why this is so good is that it strikes the balance between the unrestrained and the restrained. But it doesn't. It, but it poetry. feels unrestrained. Yeah. I think is yeah. the important thing. It feels really unrestrained, which is the even beauty of it. Technically yeah. not. Right. Um, which is the and that's beauty very of the much I think yeah. how Whitman feels. However, I feel about Whitman's poems, and you know. Again, maybe this speaks to me more because it's closer to me, maybe because it felt more accessible to me when I was growing up. And maybe just because, like, I don't know. Like, Whitman has great, great lines, but there was something... Um, like I said, it was just more accessible to me, I think. And for me, getting into some of the negative, like, I wanted to ask you about this, but right around page 18 in this, so almost to the end of, like, the first part of Hal, those that don't know Hal is in three parts, the first part is the most famous part, um, but right around page 18, I started to be like, okay, like, it starts to get a little long-winded for me as I was reading it now, like, kind of older and not, like, you know, a hungry, like, teenager, college, undergrad student, like, devouring it. And then when I got to like the second and third part, what do you think of those? Because to me, when I got to the second and third part of this poem, it did feel a little bit like it, like kind of the afterbirth of the original kind of sweeping big first part that everybody knows. And like it doesn't quite fit the larger poem. I think poem. it fits. I think it fits the larger poems. I'm just, you know, I like... I get sick. I get tired out of the kind of list structure. And yeah, I talked about this. That's what I felt around Whitman page 18. Too. It was like, and I like feel this way about most poems. The... I always feel like a, a poem that is also a list sometimes like they can be fun that, you know, they do interesting things. Sometimes they overwhelmingly don't do it for me. Right. This one does, kind of, right? Like, And that's not to say there are not poems that I don't like. I think there are those that are extraordinary. I think uh, um, Sherman Alexie's Pachyderm is one of those. I don't think right? I've ever it's read literally, it. Oh, it's literally a list, and it's done really well. Uh, it's, but it's also different. It's not, <clears throat> I call it a list, but that's only because it has numbered lines. But we, maybe we can talk about that one another time. But yeah, whenever, I mean, whenever you do a list like this, the longer the poem, the closer you get to running the risk of boring your reader, right? So while it's impressive, it's sustained, I think it fits. I think that all of these other parts that are about sort of 
um, I don't know, it's like the coming together of like institutions and religion and some kind of transcendence and some recognition of beauty in all things. And like there's this sort of smashing together of like the beautiful and the ugly and the ugly becomes the beautiful in its own right. Um, and all of that works. All of the themes work. I think that the other two sections, the ones that begin, uh, Moloch. Yeah, section two or section three. Section two is that one. And then we have I'm with you in Rockland. The I'm with you in Rockland section. Yeah. And then we have the footnote. Right? So it's really like four. <laughs> yeah. Because there's also the footnote to how. And the um, footnote did strike me a lot of this kind of like <clears throat> Whitman um, homage, or maybe even mockery to some extent, but in like a loving way. Yeah. I think the last line is great. Um, holy the hideous holy. human angels. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the last line. Uh, is that the last line in your copy? No, 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 no. no. Oh. The last line is, holy the supernatural, extra yeah. brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. Yeah, I mean, there are ways in which like these last sections do feel like a summary. I do think it's kind of important that we get I'm with you in Rockland where you must feel very strange. I'm with you in Rockland where you imitate the shade of my mother. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I think that the section's really good. Do we need I'm with you in Rockland every time? I don't know. That's not for me to decide. Do I really? I mean, uh, it's just, it's so much repetition. Does it work? Sure. Do I want it? Not really. But it feels like these last two sections are really sort of uh, you know, pushing the idea of, like, all of these things coming together, right? It's not just, uh, what was I going to say? <clears throat> I mean, everything is holy. Everybody is holy. Everywhere is holy. Every day is in eternity. Every man's an angel. Uh, you know, the bums as holy as the seraphim. The madman is holy as y uh, you, my soul, are holy. Right? Um, as holy as it is unholy, right? The sort of antithesis to Moloch. I think I wrote down what Moloch is supposed to be. Yeah, there's a lot of reference to like Jewish kind of like um, yeah. Yiddish um, Hebrew kind of words. I don't know enough about either of that. Yeah, I just looked this up. I guess I didn't put it in my notes. Hang on. It's like, con it has to do with, like, condemned practices, right? I have no idea. Um, it usually has to do with, like, you know, sacrifice. Yeah. And uh, what but I noticed as the book moved on... Moloch is a god, right? No like, idea. I'm not making this up. Hang on. So I said, do Google searches are not what they used to be. It's very hard to find what you're looking for now in a lot of Google searches. It's just like, it's I think what I think it is, is like basically a, an evil God, essentially, that he keeps associating with like, you know, is all, that, of, all of the big the institutions, right? And capitalism and 
well, it appears it's, hang on. I just mean Let the me phrase just... and reference to being like an evil demon type thing. Like, is that in like the Jewish texts of like. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think text. it was like, you know, you. It was like illegal to worship this god or is conflated maybe in some way with um, some kind of sacrificial practices. Yeah. Okay. Um, but okay. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I didn't have much to say about how, I mean, what can you say, dude? I mean, this has been written about for the last, you know, 70 years here, endlessly reinterpreted, um, Endlessly reinterpreted cock and balls. <laughs> Endless cock and balls, yeah. Uh, but I did notice, apart from those last couple poems that kind of are more traditional, as Sophie pointed out, that he actually wrote previously to Howe while he was at Berkeley, <clears throat> I, I did notice that a, a lot of the poems, apart from Howe and those last couple that kind of follow a more traditional uh, stanza and line format, it's almost like a prose format. He's done a lot of these poems in yeah. at this time. So like the supermarket in California... Uh, a transcription of organ organ music. Uh, Sunflower Sutra is a little less prosaic, but there are like I, particularly a supermarket in California struck me as almost paragraph, like written as like paragraphs, yeah. like a prose. I mean, because it is, right? Yeah, like, it literally, it feels written. Paragraph breaks. They're like, yeah. And this is the poem where he imagines seeing Walt Whitman, and then some other poets too. Um, and some writers in a supermarket in California. I remember when we were in undergrad, dude, and we had just met, I remember you turned in a poem to a workshop where you had a poem like this, but it was about seeing somebody like Hemingway in a coffee shop. Oh, yeah. About like, uh, and then oh, being like. so dumb. It was so yeah. bad. It was terrible. terrible. It just came through in my story. head. This vague little terrible. memory. Yeah. Terrible story. Yeah. Of Sophia submitting that this thing for workshop. Sophie was good at getting A's. Yeah, I was. <laughs> Didn't do me much good later. <laughs> A supermarket in California. Where what are we thoughts going, I have Walt of Whitman? you tonight. Yeah. What peaches and what penumbras. Whole families mm -hmm. shopping at night. Aisles full of husbands. Wives in the avocados. Babies in the tomatoes. And you, Garcia Lorca. What were you doing down by the watermelons? I saw you, Walt Whitman, childless, lonely old grubber, poking among the meats in the refrigerator and eyeing the grocery boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Mm, yeah, I mean, this makes sense. He refers to him later as sort of his poetic father, right? Um, yeah. Ah, dear father, gray beard, lonely, old, courage teacher. What America did you have when... Charon, I always mispronounce this, when Charon quit pulling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Leith. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I was thinking this too, is like, I don't think any poets come close to kind of matching what Whitman did in Leaves of Grass, apart from Ginsburg. Like, can you think of anything, at least nothing that I've no. taught, not like I'm a fucking expert or anything, but it's uh, at least from what I was taught in my time in school, nothing comes close to somebody doing something this ambitious, like as ambitious as Whitman tried to do, where in terms of not just using American culture and politics and all that in like a subtle way, but like really subtle? playing with... Uh, I mean, 
I say subtle mm. because it doesn't overwhelm everything else in the poem overall. You know? Yeah, I mean, because not it's in this not poem. just about that, but it is. Yeah, it's a partly true. about that, but it's about more than that. You know? So, it, and I think it's kind of. I keep thinking back to our Carl Phillips episode where, like, there is this level of yeah, like, you know, using these things well in a poem like there's an art to it that that's part of the art and if you just do all of that so if these were just straight up protest poems like if these were just straight up you know um, oh you mean where phillips <clears throat> is talking about identity there are ways to talk about like well i'm broadening beyond identity, identity but yeah the, okay I'm talking yeah. political more broadly although political now is mainly identity contemporary kind of stuff but like the political just in general like these could be protest poems, they wouldn't have had the same resonance. The fact that they were protest poems involved with the counterculture, involved in the making of art and hearkening back to somebody like Whitman, hearkening back to, um, you know, all these different things. I just, you know, that is what makes these poems last for as long as they have. That's why this is sold a million copies, not just because he's protesting at a time when protest was, you know, happening all over the country on college campuses and things like that. I guess it's a little bit before them. This is when it was starting, you know. Uh, yeah, but I, I like Supermarket in California. Probably one of my favorite um, wi uh, Ginsburg poems. Yeah, what do you think about themes other than, I mean, I guess we talked about sort of industry, drugs, psychedelic experience. Yeah. Things that would speak really to an 18-year-old. That. Right. And I think the same thing is kind of like the male sexuality, like this is kind of unapologetically also a lot about transcendence. and it's a lot of like, yeah, very Whitman philosophical type stuff. But mostly the thing that struck me as I was reading this now, you know, 10 years later after I'd first read it as a teen or so, it's it's unapologetically sexual. And I think that was a lot of the risque stuff oh, yeah. that I caused mean, it I think to be that's banned. A, that's also a lot of why I think it appeals to young people particularly yeah and i think that particularly male sexuality like like it's it's very much unapologetically male sexuality which is i guess it's just refreshing to me now because it's so hard to find depictions of that in a lot of places particularly in contemporary mainstream poetry you're not going to find a book that does that it will be rejected by the press it will be um not selected for the contest it will be you know considered too obscene too misogynist whatever it is um but yeah i just thought that was everywhere and people get really hung up on the gay aspect of it i think because it, the gay aspect it is everywhere that you know like he was unapologetically uh you know gay very proud of his own sexuality ginsburg at a time when being proud of your own sexuality was risky right dangerous even to be openly gay and openly proud about it so I, I kind of understand why this kind of male sexuality was, was really in here. Because, I mean, that's what it was, right? Like, I mean, what do you think? I'm just trying to think. My I national resource. Yeah. Of, I don't know why I'm thinking of Chen Chen. Uh, Chen Chen is a little sexual in that. Not as sexual as this. Not just sexual, but sort of in style. Yeah. Um, I have no doubt. Be, I think pretty ambitious and the amount of sort of topics and 
Let's see. Who who also uses like a kind of listing style sometimes? I mean, that was also literally like part of the book of part of the title of the book. Yeah, dude. In that poem, America, page forty one. Like my national resources, my national resources consist of two joints of marijuana, millions of genitals, and unpublishable private literature literature that goes fourteen hundred miles an hour in twenty five thousand mental institutions. <laughs> yeah. I have abolished the whorehouses of France. Tangiers is the next to go. <laughs> America used to be a communist when I was a kid. and I'm not sorry. I'm nearsighted and psychopathic anyway. <laughs> yeah, where's the one where he was like, you should see me reading Marx. You should uh, see me. I think, <laughs> that's, I think that's around when he's, he starts talking about like the America I used to be a communist when I was a kid. I'm not sorry. I smoke marijuana yeah. every chance I get. I sit on my house for days on end and stare at the roses in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> when I go to Chinatown, oh, yeah. I get drunk and never get laid. My mind is made up. There's going to be trouble. You should have seen me reading Marx. My psychoanalyst thinks I'm perfectly right. I won't say the Lord's Prayer. I have, myst I have mystical visions and cosmic vibrations. America, I still haven't told you what you, did to, what you did to Uncle Max after he came over from Russia. Yeah. Very much. And, you know, this is why Bob Dylan was all, like, kind of wrapped up into this scene, too. Like, it's this weird kind of... You know, it was a time. It was a countercultural time. Like, yeah, and there's like a lot of association, right? And the man, and the kind of romanticism of folk heroes, but this new kind of folk hero that was coming up in the American kind of milieu, like the Bob Dylan esque Middle America Midwestern boys that are coming to California, New York, or whatever, and literally changing the game, right? Yeah. I don't know. America, These people that literally really rode boxcars. To go cars. to war, America, it's them bad Russians. Them Russians, them Russians, and them Chinamen, and them Russians. The Russia wants to eat us alive. Russia's power mad. <laughs> yeah. Cock and endless balls. You got fucked in the ass by motorcyclists and screamed with joy, right? who howled on their knees in the subway and were dragged off the roof waving genitals and manuscripts. <laughs> so good. <laughs> uh, and it covers, yeah, I don't know. Who cut their wrists three times successfully, un successively, unsuccessfully gave up and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried. <laughs> I mean... I, I really like when I read this, I was like, yeah, man, I mean, I don't have much to say about like, this has been so talked about. This has been so written about. This has been so praised. And it's really all I could come up with when I was reading through this again was, yeah, it deserves most of that praise. Like it deserves almost all of it from what I can tell. Like, you know, maybe a little reputation stuff that builds up, but then that's part of the milieu too, right? Like this kind of romanticizing a certain book, a certain text to a point is part of that. Like, so you, can you really even fault that? I mean, no, right? I, it's I just, it's so bitchy. <laughs> yeah, there's a bitchy, there's a smart ass, smart ass thing yeah. to this. And, which is, I think, what, <laughs> what makes it so much fun to read, even though it does at times feel, I mean, I, I say maybe repetitive, but that's also, again, the wrong word. It's, it's not repetitive, it's, it is long. It keeps going after many occasions where it could stop. 
but it's ballsy. I do get kind of sick of anything that becomes obnoxiously transcendent. <laughs> Well, because I think there's a, there are limits to transcendence, and I think that's something that a lot of poets and writers we butt up against. I think he walks that line well, but yeah. I do tend to like. I think that's a thing. And you should be constantly butting up against it. Listeners. That yeah. keeps me, and I also tend to prefer tighter, like you know, something that's like tight and um, shorter. <laughs> and you not know, as a book. <clears throat> this is a really short book, but I tend to prefer really um sort of really concise poems not to say that i mean i like shit that gets pretty wordy i shouldn't i shouldn't limit myself here yeah well i i know what you mean though like there's in the contemporary we've kind of strayed away from anything very lengthy at all and i think like maybe that's what you're getting at is that this kind of like Lengthy does not mean not tight in a lot of these places. Right. And then like, but then there are circumstances where if you're going lengthy, it's very easy to fall into the kind of superfluous, loosen up some ends. And we, we said there might be some sections where we feel that's happening in some of these poems, but like for the most I part, I mean, it's like it when we were so reading tight. Walt Whitman, when we were like, yeah, you could cut this, but this poem, Howl is also nowhere near as long as um, right. Song of Myself. The, these are tighter than a lot of Whitman's stuff. And even yeah. the stuff song of myself, like all the stuff that's in that book leaves a grass besides song of myself. It's like, you know, not quite on the same level as song of myself as listeners go back and listen to our leaves of grass episode where Sophie and I like struggle with bored as shit trying to uh, read these like 160 year old, 170 year old poems. But yeah, just highly interested in the individual. Very Whitman. And towards the end, like those couple poems at the end there, I started getting like, you know, almost like Nick Flynn vibes from when we did that Nick Flynn book where like he's very playful with the line structure to create a new structure following each line. And it's like, and yeah, as much. I mean, I just got it kind of stylistically. It's not like it's a yeah. copy or like anything, but just like, oh, and that led me to this question, which is really my last question. Like I didn't have a whole lot, which is... <clears throat> Is Ginsburg the most influential poet of the 20th century? Yeah, I think he broke it open for a lot of people. Right? You can now put this in a poem. In the same way that, like, I don't know. The 50s and 60s was the same time we also learned, like, that you could put your personal experience in a poem, and that blew up. So, like, we can say this... We can say that we think he's one of the most influential poets, you know, that is still influencing poets today. And I think we'd be right to say so, and I think we'd be just as right to say that it was Sylvia Plath or uh, Robert Lowell. You know, I think we'd just be, we would be just as right to say it was like the confessional poets that broke this open. They were not quite as profane when doing it yeah and they were so yeah after the beats so it's like yeah for me i would say yes ginsburg is we'll cut that out but like yeah i would say that he is and i started thinking about this after reading the book and you know sophie and i texting back and forth prepping for this episode and i just started thinking like damn 
Yeah, like, you know, I, I would say Platt's up there. Platt's up there. If I was going to say, oh, who are the top five most influ- influential poets of the 20th century? Yeah, Platt, even though I always say she only really wrote one book. Uh, yeah, all you need is one, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like all you need is one. And you can be one of the most influential writers of the of the century. But I would say he is only because, like, you know, like, yeah, Lowell was a big influence on a lot of people and, and the, the confessional stuff. And, and you can even go to, like, contemporary guys that are that are Sylvia's bigger, I think. But I At just, least now. I think well, people care more about Sylvia Plath than they do Robert Lowell for the well, most part. And I think that Sylvia Plath, I think people latch on to her because she's more one popular. Of, and she's one of the few women that was writing at the time that was writing these really resonant, unapologetically, I would say, femin- feminine or feminist kind of stuff, unapologetically so. Uh, and I think that's really what makes Plath so beneficial and important to the American lit scene. And, and why, why people latch on to her is because she's one of the few women that was doing that at the time. But like... I just mean like Ginsburg, dude, like, and not just that, like his association with Dylan, like this guy was influencing music. This guy was influencing yeah, movies. True. This guy was influencing, you know, everybody around him. He was influencing all the other writers he, and he's still, do, he's dead. He's been dead for almost 30 years now. And he's still the one people are talking about. His book is still selling more than all these other people's poetry books. And like, we could argue, okay, maybe that was because of the controversy. Specific. Yeah, and maybe because of the controversy or something around his, you know, being banned, the obscenity, the gay sex that he references and stuff like that at a time when people were very prudish, not only in general, but prudish specifically, right, straight up bigoted towards gay people. Um, So there's that. But, like, I just, I can't get over this now. Now that I've seen it and and as I was reading this and I was seeing so much of the Whitman stuff since, I'm glad we did the Whitman book before this. I'm glad we did the Flynn book before this because... I wouldn't have noticed it maybe if we had done this book first and, you know, just in my reading, you know, as we go through this, the list of books that we have scheduled for this pod and stuff. And like, I just kept seeing so much of his influence in other stuff that I've read. And I didn't quite put it together until I went back and read this, you know, in my thirties, you know, about a decade after I first encountered it. And just the things that you pick up, and we talk about this all the time on this podcast, why we encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, read it, even if you don't like it, sit it on your shelf, or even, you know, if it's an important book, right? We're not saying go buy out a pop book that you don't like or something, but if it's a canonized work, like how, like this, you're like, oh, it's not great, it's not for me, and then you go back 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, and you read it again, and you start to pick up on all that stuff. And you, and you just pick up on all these things, life experience that you didn't have before, that you start to see, oh, he's talking about that. Oh, I can see the influence that he had over somebody like Nick Flynn, who's writing good books today. Oh, I can yeah. see the influence that Whitman had over him. Or like, I can see why, you know, he's the most celebrated and remembered. Like, you know, it, it's like that. I was thinking about this too. Like, I was listening to this stupid, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but not really. I was listening to like a Tarantino podcast he was doing a podcast with somebody and like you know i like tarantino i like tarantino movies whatever people can say what they want it's like he talked about this where he said his movies and he said he never intended this right but like when you went into a college dorm room when we were in college so and even before then right if there was if it was a man's dorm room or men's dorm room not even necessarily men though women would have this too there was probably a poster from pulp fiction of that still with john travolta and samuel l with the guns 
pointed facing in that stupid fucking apartment right where like that scene Mm. takes place there was the reservoir dogs poster where those guys were black and white walking on the docks and like they had the big reservoir dogs thing and like drippy blood letters or whatever like there were just these posters that influenced everything that came out of it like people worshipped it and i think ginsburg is one of those people would have posters not necessarily posters but just like a picture of him with bob dylan in that graveyard it's one yeah. of the most famous pictures not just from rock and roll but from literature american history like it was ginsburg his bald when he was fat and bald and like old at that time right and he had that stupid like coat and he was very weird and cryptic and kind of goofy uh and it just yeah i'm like damn would a poet ever be able to get to that level again i don't know i don't think i don't know if it's possible the way the apparatus is set up right now but yeah that's my long-winded way of saying that yeah i think ginsburg is probably the most influential poet of the 20th century yeah and maybe you could say american poet but, you know, I think, you know, it's pretty well established and stuff that like, you know, Whitman and Dickinson are basically the two most influential American poets. But, dude, Ginsburg deserves to be up there. I know he's much later than them and all that. But like from the 20th century, I mean, Ginsburg's in there. Like he's one of the biggest American icons we've ever produced. He's one of the people you can point to that say this is why American literature is better than British literature. And all Sorry, Brits. I know we got some uh, UK listeners out there, but... Uh, <laughs> This is why American literature is better than British literature. This is like... Well, this is why there is such emphasis on like an American poetry scene. Yeah, it was him. Like him. I guess you could say Whitman before him maybe, but like, yeah, it was him. And all these guys were around him. I think he like sort of helped to romanticize it for... Right. Would Kerouac have been as big if Ginsburg wasn't there? Like would, would Will Burroughs, like would all of these people that we romanticize from this period even be remembered if Ginsburg didn't write some of the most definitive poems, like the big poems of the 20th century? And they encapsulate all of it, right? They encapsulate this kind of 50s, right? So 50s in America, what was happening? Well, America was still segregated in most of it, right? Most of the fucking America was segregated by race. We know this, this is history. Like he captures that. He captures the kind of political revolution stuff that was kind of on the underbelly in the 50s. It wasn't quite 60s level where it was happening and we were making changes, but it was starting, right? It was starting in that, you know, it had been going on for 100 years, but it was starting, you know, to really pick up steam in the mainstream right before we pass all the legislation that we, you know, hold up in the 60s. And, you know, captures that. And then it just captures a little something else, right? That, that lost generation, that post-World War II generation, like... We were, you know, people romanticize the 50s. There's a lot of criticism of people romanticizing the 50s too much as being like this ideal, picture perfect, you know, leave it to beaver type time in America when it clearly wasn't. We all know it wasn't. Although maybe there were sex where it was. But it's like, you know, he captures that, kind of protesting that. Like, we, like there's this whole group of people that were just dejected, right? Like this generation that like didn't, wasn't quite old enough to fight in the war. Uh, wasn't quite young enough to, uh, I don't know. It's it's just like this, you know, they call it the lost generation, right? Like in literature studies and stuff, like the Kerouac and the Ginsburg. Maybe we're going through something like that time now where we have this kind of dejected millennial generation that, I don't know, like, but yeah it transcends so much and like so he said he was obsessed with the transcendent to the point where it can be annoying in some poems but then a lot of the poems he nails it he nails that transcendence 
while still not going totally off into like the world of oh this isn't a good poem anymore like he really captures that and i don't know i mean i guess i'm just like lavishing praise but i mean it's deserved i mean am i saying crazy shit or i mean it's hard not to say crazy shit about poems but no i mean i think that he was hugely influential i think he continues to be hugely influential i think rereading it i was afraid to reread this because i was like oh am i gonna find this really fucking annoying and to be honest like a little <laughs> uh, yeah like we said there are parts I where mean, i got a little oh it's a little long-winded but but i think that also just happens you know like i think that this is very much like wasn't he like sort of younger when he was writing these poems i mean very young uh, yeah and i th- i think you can feel that right yeah you can feel that but they have such a resonance like there's that little bit of youngness and this is why people say counterculture and we talked about this as a reoccurring theme on the podcast because there's always this concern and a couple writers write about it honestly and when we can get stuff like that we Sophie and I talk about it as we prep for these episodes there is like you know just being a part of this this youthful kind of rejection of what we would call we would call it counterculture but it's a very youthful rejection of the established kind of way yeah, of life even if it's not even bad yeah, even if but it's also not even like bad. an embrace of it, because I wouldn't say he totally rejects it. I think that on some level he also embraces it as like a this is the world kind and of I way. Think and there is no alternative to the world. It's hard for people to understand, but it's like, look, you know, rock and roll was just starting to become a thing, and rock and roll is so fucking synonymous with America. Like, so he talks a lot about jazz and stuff because jazz was the cool, hip, dangerous music that like parents didn't want their kids listening to before rock and roll came out in the 50s there (laughs) with a lot of these guys doing kind of a jazz blues fusion and then it kind of morphed into this weird rock and roll thing that we call rock and roll today and like that didn't even really exist (laughs) like 1955 okay we literally just had the first couple records of like little richard chuck barrett like these guys that came out in the american milieu that changed the world so him writing about sex and something like this wasn't just a commonly accepted thing in the american culture like this was like a very counterculture to even express not just your sexuality but to talk about it honestly in a book talk about it in music talk about like yeah the segregation the rate like all of this stuff like well and there was also you know all of the sort of response to world war right yeah yeah i mean these were also writers who grew up during a period when did hal come out 56 just after the second world war when was let's see Ginsburg was born when I assume that he grew up in between the wars or was sort of, yeah. So born 1926. Yeah. So, you know, he was like a kid when world war two was happening. So that he saw the fallout much like, you know, a lot like the confessional poets, there was a strong response to living during the time immediately after the war. And it's like when you're that lost generation, like they were a little too young to participate in the war and stuff 
they were too young to be drafted. They were too young to be in the, like, the military and stuff. And they were even too young to kind of be in college at the time when the war was happening, right? So they were like right after, you know, like five years yeah. after it's over. And there is this kind of, they're not a part of that, you know? Like it's, it's I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I keep trying to make a comparison to our generation where it's like, millennials are distinctly separated from a lot of other generations that came before them. People argue it's the internet. Maybe it is the internet. Maybe it is this kind of connected thing that we grew up with or partway through our, our upbringing in terms of, you know, internet wasn't really a household thing until we were like 10, 15. Uh, and even before then, you know, it wasn't like they had like chats and stuff. That was, we were a little older, but it's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There was, just this capturing of, of this dejected entire generation that felt, I don't know, there was a lot going on at the time and they felt like they weren't a part of it or, you know, you could argue, I guess they were a part of it in all these different ways. I, I don't know. I guess I'm just talking out of my ass now. Hmm. Just speculation. Hmm. Anyway, Ginsburg was a good poet. <laughs> Damn, his real first name was Irwin. <laughs> what was his full name? What was his full real Irwin name? Irwin Allen Ginsberg. Irwin. Okay, that's not terrible. We went with the middle name. Irwin. Irwin. Yeah, dude. Definitely, Didn't know that. Dude, you're definitely Learned getting beat up. Every day. Yeah. You're definitely getting beat up as a kid if your name's Irwin, dude. Irwin? Irwin? Yeah. Um, it's like naming very your kid Wolfgang. Yeah. Very much loves to sort of say fuck capitalism and damn the man and, uh, you know, fuck the military and fuck materialism and also will like, while also simultaneously being in love with everybody. And those are very specific to the time period, right? If you were somebody that said, I love communism in 1956 in America, yeah. you were a pariah. You, so I think he's, if, even if he, I mean, I'm sure he probably did, was sympathetic to a lot of communist stuff, like as a lot of kind of left-leaning people were at the time. But like, it's like, he was purposely saying that to provoke, right? Like he was provoking on purpose to an extent, but like, you know, and that can easily be annoying as you can become like a shock jock or something like that. And you don't want to become that as a writer. You know, you can be a radio DJ if you want to do that. But it's like this, like, you know, he walked that line. We've talked about it. We've been struggling to talk about it, I guess. Like there was this line that he hit so well between the joking and the serious, between the formal and the informal, between the calling back to classic works like Whitman's work and like putting something new in that between the anti-academic stuff, but also being very well read and like educated in the academy. Like it, it's this very weird time in American history where you could do all of these things. And I mean, I don't know. I think part of it is we do envy the freedom this guy, you know, a lot of the beats, I think that's one of the, the thing of the beats is, is we worship the, uh, <laughs> Sophie sent me this picture of Ginsburg of like an old man. He just looks crazy like that hair and those glasses. Yeah. He just looks crazy as shit. Dude. Yeah. Uh, I think that's when he was writing that poem sphincter dude, right? <laughs> like 1996 or whatever. It was like one of the last things that came out about like his sphincter, his sphincter. That's a good poem. Listeners look it up. Uh, 
but yeah, man, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's good. I like it. I think we're all drawn to it, but it's like the sexy anti-conformity, like, you know, it's, it's a sexy anti-conformity book of poems. America, go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. That too, in the 50s. Go fuck yourself in a poem. I think it's hard for us to remember too, and I only get this from when I read older books, like the atom bomb was such a big deal. Like it's so hard for us to understand, like, and not just like, oh, big deal because it's powerful and we dropped one on Japan and stuff. Like it's like, no, it's like people were terrified during the Cold War, (laughs) like of their fucking atom, like, Everybody in just like, you know, barbershop conversation was talking about, well, we're all going to die, don't you think? The ad- like, you know, like it was just a part of American life at that time during the beginning of the Cold War where like everybody just thought they were going to die the next day because the atom bomb's going to destroy everything. Uh, and yeah, so when he says, fuck your atom bomb, again, in saying that in 1956, well. And that's, that's really uh, like close to the beginning of the poem, America. Yeah. I don't feel good. Don't bother me. Is the next line. <laughs> I won't write my poem till I'm in my right mind. How? I mean, these are all like really sort of straightforward, like go fuck yourself kinds of lines. That is just sort of, I would guess, you know, at least in like the publishing literary world was like sort of unthinkable. That sort of was against what everyone was interested in doing. When can I go into the supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks? America, after all, (laughs) it is you and I who are perfect, not the next world. Your machinery is too much for me. Here we have a little reference to uh, uh, Wordsworth. The world is too much with us. I mean, I just can't say enough good things. And most people probably listening to this agree. But if you don't, we'd like to hear. If you think Ginsburg sucks, you're probably an odd man out. But, yeah, we'd, we'd like to hear it. You made me want to be a saint. Yeah, it's very... <sighs> That's good. Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's, like... <laughs> very accusatory in this poem. Which is fun. It's, like, what makes it sexy. Yeah. And I'm wondering now, as we're talking about it, if like the kind of anti-American sentiment or just the kind of like... It's not even anti-America. It's like anti the things that America is doing. (laughs) Which has, which I just mean like in terms of did this influence that as part of the counterculture for many years, especially throughout the 60s and 70s, right? Like in America was like this kind of like fuck America, fuck American imperialism, fuck America, you know, like this kind of, it became so him not that he was the only one doing this at the time, of course not. He wasn't the first one to do this either, but like he was so influential that it, that became part of the counterculture extensively to like, I mean, now it's just a, a part of like American upper class culture where you just, America's terrible, blah, blah, blah. It's almost boring to us now, but, but probably in the fifties, you know, it was blasphemy to suggest or to say this casually in dinner conversation or at a cocktail party. He'd be accused of being a communist, which, again, the Red Scare just ended. So he's purposely provoking me like, I was a communist, you know, fuck you kind of thing. Like, uh, like it was all of that. 
I don't know. You could go in so many different directions, and so many people have. If you just type in how to any fucking search bar, dude, like you're going to see so many goddamn things written about it exhaustively, reinterpretations, you know, political meanings, you know, all of that. Did we hit everything you wanted? Let me check. I didn't take a lot of notes. I mean, either one, because it's a short book, and one, because, I mean, they're pretty good. Like, it's hard to say much more other than praise for a lot of this. So you hear us listeners even going to like the larger cultural impacts, like the legacy, like uh, the influence, because that's what you're really talking about when you're talking about a book like how that got so big and has been so big for so long and is like an American touchstone. And also contains like beautiful language in yeah. a lot of places for all of its fuck use. It contains so much that's beautiful. Um, and clearly has a strong command. And you can see this in his earlier poems and in some of his later poems, that he has a strong command of poetry, generally speaking. Like, he's not unschooled in the traditions. I mean, again, he was the son of a very traditional poet. Um, but yeah, I think what it is, like, when you kind of get, when I talk about kind of getting sick of Ginsburg again, it has very little to do with whether or not Ginsburg was actually a good writer. He was clearly a good writer. Um, I think we sort of can outgrow some of the angstiness that we like feel when we originally read Ginsburg. You know, you can shit on me for saying that. Like, no, I, I think you're right. All the fucking yeah. time, and I love angsty shit, and I listen to emo music, and blah blah blah, all that good shit. But yeah, there's something about it. Uh, there's something about reading it in a poem that, like, I do like. There's something in me that's like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, I do kind of get sick of pushing the boundary and I do kind of get sick of um, the overflowing lines and I do get sick of how many places can I say something that's highly controversial, even though I, and you know, I say that as though that's something like that we do all the time and maybe people right. do. Well, I think you're right um, though. There's something, ex there's something very youthful. It's a young person's game to constantly be doing that so if you're like in your 50s and 60s and i feel like maybe know. that's true of like a lot that happens in poetry and you know i like I, none of this is like a sort of statement of fact it's just well, i like just mean the I angst feel, you know yeah i just yeah. mean the I think angst there, and the, there the is the something yous, about that uh, and sometimes like yeah like i don't know i crave something that is more uh, um also that doesn't like that is angsty in the absence of like all of this and yet still everything is beautiful and yet all people are right. beautiful and yet even the grime of us are, is beautiful, you know? Well, because um, I think what you're getting at is like when you're doing this kind of angsty fuck you stuff, like there's emo, you talked about the emo era with our stuff. This is a current constant theme on our podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> we bring up the emo era because it was our youth, but it's like, that is like a youth, inherently youthful thing. Like you do not outgrow it, but like as you get older, oh, you I do. Oh, I didn't, yeah. Well, there's a little bit of like a, there's a little level of self-pity to the kind of fuck you, poor me kind of youthful rebellion that we enjoy so much in a lot of art. Like, so it is this kind of like, only young people can really get away with, with a lot of that. And you can see this throughout art. Like you see this throughout most great thinkers. When they're young, they're very ambitious and they'll be more, more willing to go out there and do the fuck you thing. But there is this level of self-pity in that, 
that kind of it gets old as you're older, as you mature, or as me as a reader. I just personally. also like wonder, like, oh, like, could he have done? Could he have written something to such great effect that was really? Um, I'm like, this is again, like, I feel like I'm being shitty and unfair because it's just not his fucking style. But I like, I wonder what it would have been like to see a really compressed. Uh, Ginsburg poem, whether it could have gone to be of such great effect as Howell was and is. And I don't know. I think some of, I think some of my position, some of my, uh, like I get sick of this is my own sort of annoyance at, I don't know. I almost want to say how easy it is to say transcendence and how easy it is to say, um, we are all of the beautiful body and we are all the sunflower and we are all regardless of the regardless of all the hideous qualities of capitalism and of consumerism and of uh you know i guess the machinery of the institutions that surround us and uh, i guess there's something in me that just get sick of here. I don't know. Cut all of this. Like, I don't yeah, fucking know I what I'm go saying anyway. anymore. Yeah. I got yeah, go anyway. shit. All right, dude. All right. Um, listeners, we're still looking for those workshop horror stories. If you have a workshop, workshop horror story, contact us at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Send that to us. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash heavyboard. You get free, uh, or not free, but you get full access to uncensored episodes. Um, for subscribers only a lot of good stuff with that if you don't want to do that check out our youtube channels like share subscribe that helps us out leave us a five-star review on apple that helps us out all that good stuff uh and next week we are doing it's our christmas episode so we're doing charles dickens a christmas carol pick yourself up a copy pretty famous book and this has been heavy board uh, see you I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.